Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A couple of days ago, my dad took me swimming at Shiner Lake. We hadn't been there since Mom left when I was 10, and if I'm honest... I was more excited about spending time with him than I was going to the lake for the day. It's not that the lake wasn't fun. It was. We swam, cooked out, and I got to check out several hot girls throughout the day. But I'm 16 now, and between my friends and school at my dad's work, we don't really see each other beyond dinner and the occasional football game on Sunday. It was nice to have a full day together. It sounds sappy, but my dad is a great guy, and growing up, he was my best friend. He's always been smart, patient, and kind, even when I didn't deserve it. That's why I didn't understand what was happening. That's why I didn't know why he tried to kill me. It started yesterday morning. I got up and was eating breakfast in the living room, mindlessly flipping between internet videos while I munched on some cereal. When he walked into the room, I could tell something was wrong immediately. He was frowning terribly and wiggling his finger in his ear. At first, I thought he might have an ear infection, particularly since he stumbled slightly when I asked if he was okay. But when he raised his eyes to mine, I felt scared. It was like he hadn't realized I was there. No, it was more like he was seeing me for the first time and he didn't like what he saw. Fuck, did you just say to me, you little shitter? He drawled out the R. So long, I would have thought it was a joke any other time. Instead, he got up and started backing away from the kitchen. Nothing, Dad. I was just asking if you were okay. Sorry. I had hoped me retreating and apologizing would calm down whatever this was, but it seemed to make him angrier. Sorry. Sorry, fucking sorry. He shake his head twice and slammed the palm of his hand into his ear with a grunt. You just think you, you're sorry? Coming at me with that sass mouth? There was a thin line of drool forming at the corner of his mouth, and a new thought punched through the thick layer of fear that was taking me over. A stroke. You might be having some kind of weird stroke. The thought distracted me for a second, and that was all it took for him to surge forward and close the distance between us. He grabbed me by the shoulder and slammed the other hand onto my stomach, knocking the wind out of me and sending me to the floor. I was so surprised and hurt, I could barely think at all, beyond some dim expectation that he would start kicking or stomping me now. But there was none of that. Instead, he just stood over me, a large... Humorless grin stretched his mouth wide, and that thin string of drool yo-yoed before landing on my cheek and sliding into my hair. Now you're sorry. Now you know what's... what. 
With that, he turned and walked away, heading back into the direction of his bedroom. I heard the door slam, but I still waited a few seconds before getting up and going outside. I didn't know what to do. I could call the cops, but they might either blow me off or take it very serious, and I wasn't sure if either was what I wanted. I thought about calling the hospital, but my father has clout and money around here, and if he didn't want to go, they weren't going to push it, unless, again, I elevated it to a cop situation. I wasn't badly hurt, just scared more than anything, and maybe it was just some weird fluke, but that was dumb. He had to have had something wrong with him. He was sick or something. I ran back inside and got my car keys, and as I was getting in the car, I heard him behind me. Jack, where are you headed off to so early? I turned around, and he was smiling confusedly at me. His face so different from what the twisted, hateful mask it had been just a few minutes before. He looked like my dad again. I felt a sense of relief flooding through me, but I held it in check. I could still see the glistening saliva at the corner of his mouth, and for all I knew, this was some kind of trick. I got in the car and turned it on, rolling down the window before I answered, Dad, you just attacked me. You remember that? The change in his expression broke my heart. I could tell he didn't know what I was talking about, but from how I was acting, he knew I wasn't joking around either. He asked me what was going on coming closer to the car. I asked him to stop, and he did, his face looking even more wounded. When I told him what had happened, he started crying. He swore to me that he didn't remember anything. He said that he'd had a bad headache when he went to sleep the night before, but the next thing he remembered was getting up just a minute ago. I asked him if he could have just had some kind of bad dream and sleepwalked or something. He seemed to think it over for a moment and shook his head. I'd like to think so, but I've never heard of anyone doing anything like that when they were asleep. I need to see a doctor. I'd rather see Dr. Phillips... He's discreet and knows his stuff, but I know he's out of town until tomorrow with Melanie. He paused, his eyes sad. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with me waiting that long? If you don't feel safe around me, I'll go to the hospital now where I can stay at a hotel overnight and see him tomorrow. You decide what will make you comfortable and that's what I'll do. I wanted to tell him to go right away, but I knew he was worried about his reputation and work if it got out he was beating his son and not remembering it. And he seemed so much better. I really did hope it was just caused by some bad dreams. I told him that I was cool with him waiting and staying in the house, but if we noticed anything else weird, he really had to go to the hospital right away. He swore he could, and after an awkward silence, I turned off the car and went back inside. We hung out some in the afternoon watching TV, but it was painful. I couldn't help but be afraid of him a little, and I could tell it was eating away at him. That night he made us spaghetti for dinner, and we were in the middle of eating when he stopped mid-sentence, dropped his fork in his lap, noodles and all. 
froze, afraid to ask if he was okay or make any sudden movements. He shook his head twice, his eyes glazed and staring off at something I couldn't see. His lips started moving and I could finally hear him muttering from across the table. Pretty, yes. Oh, I think so. It's it's a perfect thing. Suddenly his eyes snapped to me, his mouth twisting into a grimace. He put his hands on the table like he was getting ready to either shove it toward me or come over it. So I ran. I should have run outside, but I was panicked, and I thought if I could make it to my room, I'd be safe. He caught me halfway up the stairs, dragging me back by the waist of my jeans as I scrambled and screamed and begged. This time he didn't talk or threaten. He punched me twice in the face and started pulling me through the house by my armpits. At one point, we were nearly outside. I twisted and tried to get up. He kicked me in the ribs and I fell back down, curling in on myself like a baby. He was still muttering to himself and smiling, a strange smile as he took up his grip under my arms and drug me out to the car, this time dragging me on my belly. That's when I first saw it. Out of the right leg of his shorts, trailing down the back of his knee and curling there was a thin brown strand of something. It almost looked like a single, long, very thick hair, but that wasn't right either. Even though my mouth was aching from being hit and my lips were starting to swell up, I still managed to let out a scream when it twitched twice and uncurled a little just inches above my face. That got me another heavier hit, and after I saw that, it's nothing but darkness. When I woke up, I was being held underwater. My first thought was that my father was going to drown me, maybe in our own pool, and I started reaching back desperately trying to claw to him, but his hand was on the back of my neck and his knee was bearing down between my shoulder blades. I tried pushing down into the sodden muck of the water I was in, but it was no use. A deep part of my brain was still screaming at me to fight, but I knew it was no use. Then, I was being pulled back up. Not by rescuers, but by my father. He had the same insane glare as before, but at least he wasn't hitting me anymore. Instead, he drug me silently back to the car and shoved me roughly into the trunk. I went willingly, knowing I had no real choice and terrified that whatever was attached to or protruding from his body might touch me. I had a momentary idea that maybe I had imagined it or dreamed it while unconscious, but in this brief time frame between the water and the trunk, I managed to see he had taken me all the way to Shiner Lake and that the thing twitching restlessly against his leg was all too real. Two hours later and I was out of the trunk. We were back at the house and he pushed me inside and up to my bedroom. I happily shut and locked the door when I got inside, thinking I'd finally managed to get some small window of safety. He didn't say anything or beat on the door, but instead went back downstairs. I started searching my pockets for my phone, but it wasn't on me. I grabbed my laptop to try and send a message out from it, but the internet was down. By then, my dad was back at the door. I heard loud thudding, and at first I was afraid he was trying to break down the door. Then I realized he was hammering in nails. He was sealing me in. I wasn't sure what to do. 
I was afraid he might try to burn the house down with me in it, but it was also possible he was shutting me in here to try and protect me from himself. The only window in my room looked down to a straight drop in the concrete patio around the pool. It was doable if I smelled smoke, but it would probably break something in the process. I was still weighing my options when I realized he'd stopped hammering and seemingly gone away. I went to the window to gauge the drop again when I saw my dad walking out into the patio. He was walking stiff-legged, dragging his right leg as he went and shaking his head more and more. I saw that long, dark tendril twisting this way and that as it wrapped itself around his leg and slid towards his ankle. He twitched more violently as he reached the edge of the water, turning enough to look at me for a moment. His eyes looked almost sad and familiar, but it was hard to say with the distance and the dark. Then he was in the pool, and in a matter of moments, he was bursting apart. The thing was much larger than what was on the outside. It was some kind of thick brown worm, and when it touched the water, it began thrashing about, ripping my dad apart in the process. Even in the dim exterior of the house lights, I could see the pool quickly turn from a dark blue to a darker red. And when I saw his chest coming apart underneath his shirt, I just closed my eyes and screamed for a while. When I opened them, the water was calm again, except for at its lower depths. I imagined I could see that long, thin monster swimming around near the bottom. And it looked as though it was coming apart as well. I swear, I saw small pieces of it floating away, darker spots of black among the red. But then it was back at the surface, smoothly arching its body over the pool's edge and sliding into the shadowy hedges beyond. I've been sitting here for the last hour writing this before I try to go down and find my phone. I don't know what that thing is, but if it gets me, I want there to be some kind of record or warning for others. I don't know why it didn't get me the first time we were at the lake, and I hope the second trip doesn't mean what I think it might. My head is pounding, and I'm so scared. But I have... I'm writing this later now. Then, then, I just woke up. My head hurts so bad now. I'm out of my room now. I woke up in the living room on the floor. I... I don't know how, but I broke down the door, I guess. Fuck my head. It's itching on the inside. It's so thirsty. I can't find phone, but I got internet going again. I think I was blacked out for a long time. It's dark again. I can't figure out what to do, so I looked up giant worms. No luck. I tried parasites. I can't think or right good right now so I'm gonna paste this here the the horsehair worm it's like a thread like round worm that derives its nickname from its resemblance to the hair of a horse's tail the worm infests the body of an insect such as a grasshopper or, or a beetle growing fully inside the body during its development it affects the brain of the host alternating its its behavior and ultimately controlling it so that the host finds its way to water and 
and drowns. The worm, which often has already started started protruding from the body prior to killing its host, then frees itself fully and begins its next stage of life. This is something like that got my dad. I think it made him infect me too. So thirsty. I hurt all over now. Oh my head. I feel it in me. I feel it inside and outside too. Oh no. I think old Mr. Horsehair is crawling all in me. Stay away. Please. I'm so thirsty. Bye. A lot of people don't remember that Christmas is rooted in fear. It's been wrapped up in pretty packaging, given the face of a jolly bearded man made to sound like jingling bells and the hoofbeats of eight tiny reindeer. But in my small Pennsylvania town, we remembered. We call the weeks leading up to Christmas the season of red. The first ribbons appeared every year on the first day of December, like so many crimson slashes across the bellies of the biggest trees in the front yard. It happened at sundown, when every family would gather on their lawn to tie their ribbon tight. No bows, no fanciful designs, just a single heavy knot. Each member would touch the ribbon, and then they'd return to their lives for another 24 hours until the process would be repeated. A new ribbon every day leading up to Christmas. It wasn't strange to me. It was something I'd done all my life. I thought everyone had their own season of red until I was 16 and my best friend Nick came to visit for the first time. We'd met online playing games and I'd spent six months convincing my parents he wasn't a pedophile, so they'd let him visit. They finally agreed and his flights were booked. He arrived three days before Christmas to a town wrapped in red. You guys go all out, huh? Nick asked, peering out the car window while we drove slowly through my neighborhood. You gotta, my little sister Tori advised sagely from the back seat. She insisted on coming with me to the airport to make sure Nick was on the up and up. My 12-year-old 90-pound bodyguard. How else do you keep the still man away? The still man? Nick half turned in his seat to look at her. I could see the skepticism stamped on his face, even in my periphery. It's just superstition, I said. You don't have it in Nebraska? We don't have anything in Nebraska. Beware, beware, the steel man draws near. Torn from his rest by goodwill and cheer. He comes for you now, a creature of dread. Your only escape is to hide behind red. A ribbon each day, strung high up front, will ward him off and keep you safe from his hunt. Tony recited dutifully. She didn't appreciate Nick's laughter in response. Your, your whole town gets in on this still man thing? He looked between us, grinning. Pretty much, I replied with a shrug. If someone doesn't put their ribbons up, somebody else will do it for them. 
These trees are covered. How long do you guys do it? 24 days, Tony said. You gotta until Santa comes and chases him back to his grave. Santa, huh? It's more like the spirit of Christmas or Jesus' arrival or something, I said. So what's so scary about the steel man that makes everyone do this? I let Tony, who was heavily invested in the urban legend, explain the story of the still man. She dove in with all the seriousness of a true believer. The tale was a grim one, about an overlooked and ignored vagabond who had been left to die in the streets while everyone else went on their Christmas celebrations. They found him in the front door of the church, frozen solid and standing upright with one arm outstretched reaching for the door. They buried him in an unmarked grave on the outskirts of town and forgot about him. Until the next year, on December 1st, when rumors started that he'd been standing in the streets outside people's windows. People started disappearing. One on the first day, two on the second, so on and so on. Only those houses that had been decorated with red ribbons were spared any loss. No one knew why he wouldn't cross it, but the red ribbon became their protection against his evil spirit. And if he does find you, there's almost no getting away. He only moves when you do, so you either have to stand there until you freeze like he did, or you run and he follows. The further you go, the closer he gets, until he catches you. Tony snatched at the air with both hands. The only way to escape is to get into a house behind ribbons. Nick scoffed. <laughs> Sounds stupid. Well, if you're so brave, maybe you should go wait for him outside, Tony said snippily. Maybe I will. Good. Fine. The visit was off to a great start. When we got home, I introduced Nick to my parents, who were relieved to see the same gawky, tall teen that had been in the pictures and showed him around the house. It didn't take long before any of the lingering awkwardness that comes from meeting in person for the first time wore off, and we had our laptops booted up in a game running. That night, after another round spent in Call of Duty, Nick lowered the lid of his computer. You really believe all that still man stuff? He asked. Nah, it's just like all the other Christmas bull. Like that evil Santa dude from Germany or whatever. So you wouldn't care if some of the ribbons just went missing. I rolled my eyes and sat back in my chair. <laughs> no, it's just a story. Let's do it then. What? Let's go take some ribbons down. Freak people out a bit. It'll be fun. I hesitated. I didn't believe in the still man, but I did believe that there would be some kind of punishment if we got caught. The wrath of my parents, especially right before I was expecting a few pretty nice gifts, was much scarier than some bedtime story monster. I don't know, man. That's, that's messing with my neighbor's stuff. We could get in trouble. It's almost midnight. Who's still going to be awake and looking out the window to notice us? We'll just hit one house real quick. Nobody will know anything until tomorrow morning. I could see the external hard drive I asked for slowly vanishing from beneath the tree. Come on, Pete, don't be a little bitch. Snow had fallen heavily all evening, and the fresh blanket of white crunched beneath our feet. I shoved my hands cold, despite my gloves. I shoved my hands, cold despite my gloves, deep into my jacket pockets. We're leaving tracks, I griped. They're going to lead right back to my house. 
Quit whining, numbnuts, Nick said dismissively. We'll just run up and down a few driveways so they have tracks to. This is so stupid. Just shut up and pick a house. We selected Miss Turpitz. She was an elderly woman who lived alone and always had her lights out by 8.30. She would definitely be asleep at such a late hour. We crept across her lawn and Nick cut the ribbon circling her tree with the kitchen shears we'd taken while I kept watch. Hurry up, I hissed. He waved me off and finished snipping the last one. He stuffed the bundle of red into his pocket with a triumphant grin and darted up to Miss Turpitt's front door and away again, leaving a line of disturbed snow in his wake. You do some of the houses over there. I'll do the ones over here. Go. When we were finished, confusing trails of messy footprints had been woven up and down the street. Breathless and red-faced from the cold, we ran back to my house and collapsed in my rooms, hands pressed over our mouths to keep from laughing too loudly. Nick paraded the cut ribbons around like a trophy. The neighbors were far less amused with our midnight antics than we had been. When Miss Turpitt's bare tree was discovered, there were complaints of vandalism, which was a bit more serious than concerns over the still man. Nick and I laid low while my parents discussed who might have done such a thing to a sweet old lady's Christmas decorations. Our neighbor went over to ring her bell and check on her. Mrs. Turpitt didn't answer. She's probably visiting her kids back down in Philly, Dad said. She was home yesterday, Mom replied. It's a three-hour drive, Lil. Not exactly a cross-country track. Tony, who had been watching from the front stoop with us, stared across the street, her face pale and eyes wide. She clung to my sleeve and whispered, The still man. Nick thought it was all great fun. Let's do it again tonight, he whispered after everyone had gone in. They seemed pretty upset by it, I said, gesturing vaguely toward Miss Turpitt's house. That's what makes it so good. Come on, man, it's just a few ribbons. If we get caught, we'll just replace them. I sighed. It was definitely not getting that hard drive. Nick selected our next target that night, the Clark's house down the street. They had a young daughter, Emma, who Tony was friends with. According to Tony, she'd been terrified that the still man would come for her house next. It was all she could talk about while they played. I thought it was a bit mean to go after her ribbons, but... Also kind of funny, so I agreed. The last time, though, okay? I insisted. Nick did a little bob of his head that was equal parts nod and a shake. Once my dad's heavy snores were drifting steadily from my parents' room, we snuck downstairs and slipped out the front door, kitchen shears tucked into Nick's jacket. It was colder out than the night before, the kind of cold that stinks wetly through every layer of clothing and bites at your bones. My teeth chattered noisily as I wrapped my arms tightly around my middle. Nick walked ahead, his breath leaving long streams of white lingering in the air. It chilled our enthusiasm and made us hurry toward the Clark's lawn. Nick knelt by the ribbon tree, shears raised. A window slid open overhead. What are you doing? A small voice demanded. Emma Clark glared down at us. Uh... I replied, too cold to come up with a quick answer. Just checking your ribbons are secure, Nick said smoothly. Then why do you have scissors? Nick wasn't so prepared for the follow-up. 
You stole Mrs. Turpit's ribbons, didn't you? Emma accused. You... Her words shriveled up into a slow inhale. Emma? I called up as loudly as I dared. When she wasn't looking at us anymore. Her eyes were so large they seemed they might pop out of her skull. They were locked somewhere behind us. Even in the dim lighting offered by the streetlight, I could see that the color had drained from her face. I turned to see what she was looking at. A person was standing in the middle of the street, gaunt with purpled lips and features eaten away by frostbite. One arm outstretched in front of him. He was completely still save for the rustle of his threadbare clothes and a bitter breeze. Nick? I groped for my friend and yanked him to his feet. What are you... I cut off his irritated question with an elbow to his ribs and pointed. The cold deepened around us. You're fucking with me, Nick said in soft disbelief. My fingers tightened around his arm. Pete? He uttered, less brave, unable to look away from the frozen figure. I'm not. I found my voice enough to say. Emma's window slammed shut. The still man remained in place, reaching and staring. My face was going numb from the cold, but I couldn't have released Nick even if I wanted to. Pete? Nick said again. I took a step back. The still man hadn't moved. I'd swear on it, but somehow he'd come two steps closer. What the fuck? Nick's voice had become a squeak. Beware, beware, the still man draws near. Torn from his rest by goodwill and cheer. He comes for you now, a creature of dread. Your only escape is to hide behind red. A ribbon each day, strung high up in front, will ward him off and keep you safe from his hunt. My house, I said through lips that didn't want to work. Run. It was only up the street, a few minutes walk, if that, but in the dark and freezing, it suddenly seemed like an impossible journey. My legs refused to cooperate properly, and I trudged like I was in a dream, desperately trying to run, but practically stuck in place. Nick wasn't doing much better. He whimpered, scrambling to get ice to limbs moving. I made the mistake of looking over my shoulder. The still man had closed half the distance between us without so much as a twitch. I could feel his filmy eyes burning into mine. I turned back around, tucked my chin to my heart, and forged ahead, forcing my body to fight the cold and charged toward my house where the ribbon-wrapped trees stood tall against the night. I dove into my front yard and rolled through the snow, came crashing onto the walkway, and leapt jerkily to my feet. The front door was so close. Pete! I didn't see Nick fall. I heard it, though. The crash of his body against the pavement, his thrashing in the road as he tried to regain his feet. I spun, hand outstretched for him. The still man was standing over Nick, except now, instead of reaching forward, he was stopped, curled, blackened fingers, closed around the back of Nick's jacket. I screamed. Pete! Nick yelled. 
And then there was only me, standing alone shouting into the impossible cold. I was taken to the hospital and treated for hypothermia after my parents found me. I was in and out of consciousness and was told I was ranting about the still man taking Nick. While mom and Tony stayed by my bedside, dad went with the police to look for Nick. He was found on Christmas Eve morning in front of the church, frozen solid, standing upright with one arm outstretched, reaching for the door. His mouth was stretched open in an endless, silent scream. The adults concluded that we'd snuck out and become disoriented in what had been a record-breaking cold. While I found my way home, Nick had somehow wandered across town with nowhere else to go. They surmised he'd attempted to seek shelter at the church, but hadn't made it. My claims that I had seen the still man taken were called hallucinations. When Emma was questioned, she just cried and they didn't press the matter very hard. It was only worse when Mrs. Turpitt, who... I insisted had also been a victim, returned home from a Christmas spent with her kids in Philly. Nick's body was returned to Nebraska. The season of red ended. Everyone moved on. Everyone but me. I still saw Nick every night while I slept, frozen solid, face twisted into a scream, arm raised, but it wasn't the church door he wanted. It was me. For all those years that I remained in that small town, I honored the season of red, carefully wrapping my tree tightly knotted ribbons for every 24 days until it was over. Even still, if I looked out my window past midnight, I'd see them. Two figures, standing still as statues in the freezing night, reaching for me, waiting for me. The one that got away. Thank <laughs> you.